But before I begin, I just want to humbly acknowledge that, that last week I did commit the, um, the ultimate fantasy lover's error by confusing a character from one fantasy series with another. I know the error was grave and I've borne shame all week. For those of you who are not here, or if you missed the laughter and the cackle, uh, the condescending looks, I actually <clears throat> said Voldemort, a uh, character in Harry Potter uh, with The Lord of the Rings. I have watched both series, read the books. It was simple misspeak. Now, I knew when the laughter was greater than expected, I had buffaloed it. And I thought, well, I'm just going to keep rolling. And <clears throat> confirmation, though, of my misstep came when within two nanoseconds after the benediction, there was a cue lined up <clears throat> wanting to point out my error. One man actually bounded four rows over the chairs to help this pop culture challenged preacher. <clears throat> it does rival my other fantasy foul-up when I called Aslan a tiger. <laughs> when in fact, or I should say in fantasy, he is a lion. Uh, then there were shrieks of horror and cries from my literarily sophisticated audience. And, uh, but you can be assured that there will be more coming, I'm sure. <laughs> but now we have to get back to the sermon, which is ripe for this kind of thing, actually. Okay, let me cut to the chase with the Song of Songs. Uh, it is uh, probably one of the greatest challenges facing our humanity is to understand our human sexuality. Uh, we are confused, we're twisted, we're a little distorted. In fact, among the age group from 13 to 25, uh, more people believe that it's immoral to not recycle 56% than it is to look at porn, 32. Uh, we tend to err in either giving way to urges or we tend to see our sexuality as something to be stifled and denied. Well, this book has wisdom for us, the Song of Songs. Now, let me explain. The Song of Songs, uh, most of the titles in the Hebrew Old Testament come from the first letters in the book. And so Song of Songs is the title of this. And, and it's really a Hebrew way of creating a superlative. So king of kings would be a king over all kings, and, and holy of holies would be the holiest place among all holy places. So song of songs is the writer saying, this is the best, the greatest song of all songs. And it's the song that we learn about God giving us wisdom regarding our sexuality. Remember, all this wisdom literature is moving us back to becoming fully human. Sin disorders our humanity, and God gives us wisdom to bring us back into order, back into our full humanity. Now, who wrote this book? Well, of course, you saw in the title, Solomon is his name. He's, he stated it right there in the title. He stated it half a dozen times in the book. He is mentioned. You see, the, when you read the Song of Songs, you'll see the dignity and the royalty of it. And we know that in 1 Kings chapter 11, that he wrote over a thousand songs. So, so it could be Solomon. 
It could easily be. But when we think it might be Solomon, you know, there's a bit of consternation over this. Here we have a man writing this eloquent book on marital sexuality and love, and he had 700 wives. It's like Hugh Hefner giving us a talk on the value of marital fidelity. It just doesn't square. And we think, I'm not believing Solomon could have written this book. Some people think that it was compiled and it was given to him, because you can translate in Hebrew the first sentence, the Song of Psalms, which is to Solomon, not which is of Solomon. Maybe it's attributed to him as part of wisdom literature. Or some believe that maybe Solomon did write it. But it was at the end of his life, and it was written as an act of contrition, really, over his failed and idolatrous relationships. Either way, if Solomon did write it, Matthew Henry has some wisdom for us. He's a commentator of the uh, 18th century. He says, let us all learn not to think the worse of good instructions, though we have them from those who do not altogether live up to them. Doesn't that apply to our parenting? The instruction that we give to our children It's coming from lives that are not lived in perfect light with those same instructions. Okay, so the the you know who wrote the book is a question, but how to read the book is another question. When you read it, it's going to be a challenge for you. It's it's probably one of the most difficult books to interpret. It's probably had the widest variety of interpretations given to it. It's poetry. And you know, the nature of poetry is that you're getting the maximum punch with the minimum words. Poetry asks you to ponder and to wonder over the symbolism. It doesn't tie up loose ends. But remember, with poetry, there's a certain gripping of your soul with good poetry that prose will not bring. So how do we translate this? Well, for the bulk of Christian history, it's been translated as an allegory. I think due to the erotic language due to the blatant sexuality within this book, most have felt it can't be but allegorical. And what an allegory is, is it's, chase, it's ignoring the basic meanings of a word, and it looks to something deeper, more mysterious, usually spiritual. So in the Song of Solomon, a man would not be just a husband, but he'd be God. And the woman is not just a wife, but... She's going to be the nation of Israel, or she's going to be the, the church of God. But, but there's an imported meaning into the basic meaning of the word. Uh, let me give you an example. In chapter 113, the woman speaks, and she says, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now Cyril of Alexandria, 5th century church father, He understood that the one lying between her breasts was really Jesus coming between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Allegory is a good way of avoiding how awkward I feel right now, as I think (laughs) what it is. But the basic problem with allegorical interpretation is anything can say anything. You can make it say anything. This is why Bernard of Clairvaux, an 11th century French mystic, He preached 86 sermons on about 100 plus verses. Or origin of Alexandria, another church father from the second century. He preached, or he wrote a 20,000 line commentary on this book of the Bible. 
C.S. Lewis so sends, sets it up well for us. He says this, almost anything can be read into any book if you're determined enough. Some of the allegories thus imposed on my books have been so ingenious and interesting that I often wish I had thought of them myself. <laughs> so, so allegorical interpretation, I may return to a piece of it later at the end, but that's the, been the bulk of interpretive methods on this book, and, but I don't think it's the right. Now, there are a few others, but let me just cut to the chase and move to this one. And that is more of a natural, literal reading. And that is where a man is a man, and a woman is a woman, and a kiss is a kiss. That, that we look at this book as a collection of love poems. The, the poems written back and forth. It's really to be sung to one another. The, the, showing the grandeur and the beauty and the dignity of human sexuality. It, it's a beautiful book speaking about the nature of marital love and intimacy, just as it's stated. Now, that doesn't mean saying that we want to read it naturally or literally doesn't mean we don't look at the symbolism, and it doesn't mean that there might not be some point to be made later about what it may point to. But basically, we want to read this book naturally because you're going to hear echoes of Genesis 2 and 3 in this book. You're going to notice when you read the book how often it refers to the garden. It, what the writer is doing is he's trying to help us see this is the nature of sexuality after the fall. That, that this naked and unashamed, God is reordering our sexuality to be as he's intended it to be. And it's a beautiful book. And Judy read it beautifully. And, and when you read it slowly and appropriately, it, it, it's going to draw you, it's like a regathering back into Eden is what it is. God saying, this is what I want for my children to enjoy. So we're going to look at the book in three movements. The first couple chapters looks at a longing for love. You're going to see the, the man and the woman, they long, they desire to be loved. And then it moves from chapter 3 through 4 about the consummation or the celebration or the intimacy of the love that's to take place within the context of a marriage. And, and then you're going to see it move from chapters 5 to the end of the book, the maturing that should take place in a marriage, the movement towards oneness in a marriage. So let's look first at the longing of marriage. This, you're going to see as you read chapters 1 and 2 that they desire each other, they long for each other, and they express it beautifully. Listen to what she says. She begins in verse 2. She says this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. And he responds to her. So it's this back and forth. He responds and says, Oh, most beautiful among women. Now, it's interesting in this time prior to marriage, as they're expressing their love and devotion to each other, she expresses insecurity over her beauty. You see this in verse 5. She says, Do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's son were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyard. In other words, she's had to work outside. Her skin is darkened. Her skin is hardened under the rays of the sun. And she feels insecure about her beauty. And she expresses that openly to him. And then he responds with words of affirmation. He says, O oh, most beautiful among women, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among 
Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of pearls. Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Your eyes are like doves. So a mare in the, as a, in the stables of the chariot, that's a beautiful thing. Now, personally, I wouldn't go there with my wife on that one. <laughs> mare and the wife, that does not work for me. But in the context, it is very, very beautiful. But you can see that they're expressive to one another. They're expressing their longings. They're not denying their longings. They're actually cultivating them and speaking to them. And, and you know, when I look at us, and when you read these first two chapters, I, I want you thinking about the yearning that every human has. Every single one of us wants to be loved. We want to be longed for. We want to be desired. That's a good thing. I mean, think about all the songs that have been written just in the last 50 years. How many are love songs? How many are loves, love lost, love gained, love enjoyed, You know, the, the love unmet? You know, we desire this. This is a good thing. God has created us to want to be loved and held and desired and longed for. Now, of course, in the context of prior to marriage, there's warnings that we hear in the scriptures. There's warnings that are in this book. Over and over, the woman repeats to the daughters of Jerusalem, that is the other women in attendance here. She says this, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So powerful is a heart that wants to be loved that it actually becomes temptable ground. And, and I would say, actually, to, to men in this regard, you know, unmarried men, as you uh, deal with and have friendships with women, this is an area to be careful. What does love look like? What does a good, healthy relationship look like? It looks like one of care, one of protection, uh, but, but, but you have to be careful to not create or to not cultivate in the heart of another person a greater love for them than you intend. Because as you show affection, as you show admiration, that can be received and understood in ways that you don't expect or perhaps intend. Or, or women, the same thing. Women in your relationships, the way you present yourselves, the, the way you handle yourselves um, is, yeah, is an area to be cautious of. But because you want to be loved, and oftentimes women present themselves in, in a very attractive fashion. And you know, women, there's a, very, um, there's a clear difference between being attractive and being provocative. And, and being provocative cultivates in the heart of man a desire, and it awakens a love, and, and I would say even a lust, uh, that, that there, needs to be, there needs to be caution given to that. But this desire for love and to be loved is a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, particularly, caution is also to be exercised in, in the beginning of a relationship. I've seen many young couples where uh, the man may be a Christian, the woman is not a Christian. Maybe she's gone to church once or twice, and, and you begin to develop affections, and you begin to develop attractions to one another, and and quickly, I've seen the justification move to, well, she's interested in Christianity, and she wants to be going to church with me more. And This is where we move into evangelistic dating here kind of thing. We're going to date with the intention of conversion. And I would, just, I would just urge caution in that, because the love that you desire is strong. It's really strong. And it can cause us to move in directions that can bring about a lot of suffering and regret later. So there's caution urge there, and that's what the young woman urges. But then this longing for love 
for most, moves into a consummation of love, into a fulfillment of love. Now, this is where we move into the issue of human sexuality, marital intimacy. Now, generally, when you hear this from a pulpit, you generally hear it in some sort of condemnation over lust or pornography or extramarital relationships. And, and sadly, the church has been really too silent on human sexuality. We've let culture write the books on sex, and yet here we have our own book on sexuality. It's not written as a sexual manual, but it's written about a treatise on the intimacy that is to be between a man and a woman. And we know that because when you move in chapter 3, verse 5, you begin a wedding procession. And it ends up in 11, verse 11, where we read these words. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out and look. You daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. On the day, his heart rejoiced. So in 3.11, you see a marriage take place. And then chapter 4, chapter 4 is all about the wedding night. It's the detail of their communication with each other in the midst of their intimacy. It's a very personal, private, very dignified moment. He says this, the man begins, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are behind, your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. So, so the man Again, look at the context. He's speaking to her about the flowing nature of her, hair, of her hair. He's speaking about her teeth. Now, if I were to be specific, he's saying that she has all her teeth, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. She doesn't smile, and, you know, and, and, and they're washed. They're clean. And, and I would encourage this, the honeymoon and really beyond, uh, the whole thing. But, but do you see what he's doing here? He... He's so intimately aware of even her smile and, and, and her face and the, and the facial aspects that she has. And he rejoices over that. And he gives word to it. He's verbal. And it's responded to by her. Listen to what she says. Listen to the invitation she gives in 16. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices of fruit that language is delicate, it's discreet, it's graphic, but it's not distasteful. You see an abandonment here with each other. You see an absolute freedom with each other in terms of their sexuality. And it's a freedom that is safe because it's in the context of a covenant that has been forged between the man and the woman and God. It's not a covenant of convenience, it's not a covenant of sexual attraction. It's a covenant with God. And you see at the end of the night, in chapter 5, verse 1, it's the only verse that most attribute to God speaking. He seems to give a benediction over their intimacy. And he says this, Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Get drunk on love with each other, is what God is saying. Enjoy one another. It's a freedom, there's a joy, there's a satisfaction to this intimacy that we see in this book. Solomon says the same thing in Proverbs 5.19. He says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, always in her love. That's the language of passion. 
That's the language of joy and satisfaction. You know, when we look at marital intimacy, what the scriptures are really encouraging us, particularly this song of songs, is that our intimacy is to be verbalized, that we are people who can speak with one another about what we love, what we enjoy, about the beauty that we see in one another. That, that men, you are, you are responding to your wives about their beauty and about your attraction and desire. And, and ladies, you're responding back to them, giving them verbal affirmation. As Judy read from chapter 5, that his legs are like, like bronze set in, in marble. I mean, Carol is just jotting down notes feverishly on that. But we want to be verbal with one another. And, and, and many of us feel awkward about that. But let me, let me give you a quote from a former professor at seminary I went to. He says, why should the church stumble at the presence in her inspired canon, a song extolling the beauty and, beauty and dignity of human love and marriage? Considering how large this subject looms in our attention as men and women, would it not be remarkable if there were not such an extended treatment of it in the volume God has given to us for instruction, correction, and reproof. God's given this to us to help us to be verbal with one another. But not just intimacy is to be verbal. Intimacy is to be other-centered. It's loving your neighbor at the deepest level. That, that, that our intimacy, that the man's intimacy for his bride is to focus on her good, on her joy, on her satisfaction, and vice versa. It's never to be seen as a selfish act of pleasure for oneself. That's more of an animalistic approach to sexuality. Remember, God is moving us to becoming more and more fully human, where we're looking more and more like God as we mature in the faith. And so Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This takes place in the context of our intimacy, that we are serving the other. Intimacy also is to be celebrated. It's to be celebrated. Now, let me remind you, the church has usually gone off rail, usually in one of two ways. The, the primary way that the church has gone off rail is that we've fallen into platonic dualism. And that's just a fancy way of saying that we separate the spiritual and the physical. And we attribute good and high value to the spiritual, and we kind of look at more low value and base and profane the physical. And when you look at sexual morality or sexuality, that's part of the physical. And so it's seen as less holy than, let's say, sexual renunciation. You see this even today in the Roman Catholic Church where the priests are to be celibate. They're to be celibate. Why? They shouldn't be having sex. Why? Because they're leaders of a church. And so there's, there's this kind of this aura, that this Greek thinking that has bled into the church that, that the husband and wife can have sexual relations for the purpose of procreation, but do not enjoy it and do not promote it and do not speak about it. Do not encourage it with one another. I mean, when I go to Haiti, I've been to Haiti probably more than a dozen times, and I probably half the times I've been down there, when we have Q&A sessions, they'll often ask me this question. Is it wrong for me, a pastor, to have sexual intimacy with my wife the night before I preach? They ask that question, and I would say, why is it wrong? You're creating a dichotomy as if God's only Lord over the spirit, but not Lord over the body. 
Did God make all creation? Isn't all good? Jesus Christ in the incarnation, didn't he take on a body? You know, showing the value of the body. So it's this false dichotomy. It's failing to enjoy all that God has given to us. And very smart people have believed this. Augustine, Ambrose, Tertullian, these church fathers, they've, th- they've thought, no, it, the higher path is to not walk in sexual intimacy. And I think it has done, it's been no help to the church. The other rail that, you know, when we go off rail, the other direction we can go into is finding our identity in our sexuality. I'm gay, I'm bi, whatever. You know, we're defining ourselves now by a sexual orientation rather than sexuality being a part of our human nature but not being the whole of it. Or we go off rail and just giving way to our urges. That's what the animal does. The animal moves in response to instinct and urging. We're human beings. We move slowly and thoughtfully. And we don't give way to the urges. So... so we look at intimacy as Christians from the Song of Psalms, uh, from the Song of Songs, as a, a point of celebration. We're thankful for it. God says pleasures are at his right hand, and he's given those to his children for us to enjoy. Okay, and then last, intimacy has to be protected. This consummating of our marriage, this intimacy, it has to be protected, both for men and for women. We have to cultivate a love for one another, particularly as we change. That I define beauty by the way Carol looks. That's how beauty is defined by me. We define beauty by the beauty of our spouse, not what we once were or what we want to be. Beauty is defined by who we are. And we have to protect this. Um, one problem that has entered our world in large measure is, is pornography. I mean, pornography is, is clearly, um, it deteriorates the joy that we have in the wife or the husband of our youth. And we are unaware, according to one survey, only 4% of the people surveyed find that the use of pornography minimizes the joy in the relationships that we have with our spouse. And I would say to you that there are sociological studies that show for men and women to be involved in pornography and then turning to the spouse that there is a diminished sense of joy and appreciation and satisfaction because nobody can live up to a picture. And so we have to protect our marriage and we have to protect our intimacy in marriage by walking in it rightly. You know, Paul even discusses this in the uh, book of Corinthians, the first chapter. He says, listen to these words. He's writing this to a church, so it's meant to be read to a whole church. He says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman, notice the equality here, and each woman have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, And likewise, the wife to her husband. Again, for you to see the equality here in a culture where it was just assumed the man would take his pleasure and leave. You see the scales balanced. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer 
but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's a protection feature about our regular engaging in the pursuit of our spouse, both the husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. Now, when I speak about this, this issue of you know, longing for love, moving into consummation of love, I know that many of you have suffered in this. You've suffered by abuse. Both men and women have suffered such that anything beneath your neck is really something that causes you great harm. And, and I'm sorry. People have deep pain associated with this. And it affects them. It affects them for a long time. And, and I, I grieve with you over that. Um, it's, life is so complicated. And uh, we have to work through so many things. And I, if you are struggling, then I would appeal to you to see God. He promises to bind up the brokenhearted. He, he promises to heal your wounds. That's the value of a church, to come together, to find a brother or sister with whom you're close that you can share this with and ask for prayer and ask for grace, that God does heal. And we need that. And, and some of you here listening to me speak, you've, you've caused suffering, even to yourself. You've walked in ways that are, are shameful to you now, and you have deep regret over these things. And many of us feel that way. We were raised in a time where sexuality was unhinged from commitment in terms of a marital fidelity, and we've walked in ways that we now regret greatly, and many of you still carry those with you. And, and I just want to encourage you that this is where the power of the gospel comes through. The power of the gospel is such that, that he cleanses us from our sins when we confess our sins, that, that, that he is able to do that. You know, I think about the woman that was brought to Jesus. You know, she was brought in the act of adultery. So she would have been naked in a public square before Jesus with her accusers around her. And Jesus says nothing to her. And he's really chiding the men. That's what he's doing. And he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Just the washing of Christ over her life. A life of prostitution, most likely. A washing over her life. And she went away changed. Many, many feel that she then turned around and became one of his most ardent followers after that. Could have been Mary. We don't know. But, but, but that's, the, that's the power of the gospel. Don't drag the sins of your past with you. Confess those and believe that the power of the gospel is right. When he said it's finished, it was finished. He finished it for us. What we could not do for ourselves, he has, in fact, done for us. And, and we praise him for that. So you look at this longing of love in chapters 1 and 2. You see this consummation of love in chapters 4. And, and then you look at this maturing of love. And, and primarily, you see their growth in love as part of their intimacy, that there's a growing oneness that they have with one another. There's a growing knowledge. You know, In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam lay with his wife, and he knew her. Now, normally, to know your wife is a euphemism for having intimate relations with her. But the fact that he laid with his wife, and he knew her, it's showing us that, that our sexuality is part of the means that God develops in us to help us know our spouses in ways that nobody else will ever know them. Ever know them. 
There's a closeness that we, that we forge, a oneness that is what marriage is pointing to. They were naked and unashamed. Again, you hear the echoes in Genesis. They were naked and unashamed. They were coming together to develop that oneness. That our sexuality and the development of our marriage is even with comfort. You know, when, when words are few and trials are great, that the ability that God, the gift he's given to us with our wives or with our husbands, that that's for comfort. It's for oneness. It's for closeness. It's for growth and knowledge. And it doesn't mean it doesn't come without conflict. Conflict is part of the marital union. And you even see that in chapter 5. Very quickly after the wedding night, the worst time to have a fight, here's what you read in chapter 5, verse 2. You hear her words first. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Where is he? He should be in the room with her. He's outside the door. And, and she's saying, my heart was awake. In other words, she's not able to sleep. They've had a conflict. He's knocking. And then, then he speaks. And you'll see that in your scriptures. He, she, he. It'll show you the back and forth dialogue. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew my hair with the dampness of the night. In other words, he's been walking outside. I mean, they've had a battle. He's out there trying to cool down. He comes back in, and here's what she says. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? In other words, I don't want to get out. I don't want to get up and open the door to you. She refuses to let him in. He leaves. She then chases him in the rest of chapter 5. She goes after him because she realizes, this is my beloved. This is my love. And then he comes and finds her and they reconcile. And you hear the reconciliation in chapter 7 when she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Again, that's a link back to Genesis 3.16. When, when part of the curse was that you'll rule over your wife and that, and that her desire will be for you. But now his desire is for me. This reordering of life, this, this coming together again. See, when you, when you read this book, you're going to see these cycles of longing and then estrangement and then pursuit towards reconciliation and then consummation. And those cycles are part of our marriage. You know how we do that? We do love each other, but then we get our horns locked and, and then we, we're to pursue reconciliation and then we bring consummation through intimacy and over and over the cycles of marriage. That, 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 that's what grows us into a oneness. But you, I want you to notice that this oneness is without children. There are no mention. There's no mention of children in this entire book. And there's actually no mention of children in Genesis 2 either. In other words, children, the blessing that they are, are not to interfere in the development of oneness. And they can. Uh, they, many of us in our culture have become very child-centric. And our efforts and our time and our attention is poured into those children. And I know a number of men and a number of women that feel as if, if I could just get a little bit of that time, it would really be good. And this is a challenge to you all. It is, does your spouse get the first fruits? Does he get the best of you? Because he or she is entitled to it, not the children. The children you're raising to send. You send them and they, and they forge their own oneness, just as we're reading here. Be mindful of that. 
And then, of course, it ends up in chapter 8 with it maturing to full bloom. Love coming into full bloom. Listen to what she says in verse 6 of chapter 8. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. It's not even worth it because of the love that I have with my spouse. So you see the, the conclusion here of a mature, glorious love forged out over time where longing has given way to estrangement and then pursuit reconciliation and then the repeated consummation. That reconciliation, not just in heart but in body. So, so our marriages and, and the marital wisdom contained in this book comes through conflict. I want us as Christians, we're not afraid of conflict. We see it as an opportunity to bring glory to God, but it comes through the reconciliation of it, not the ignoring of it. When we ignore conflict in our relationships, particularly in our marriages, there's a settled coolness that comes down on our relationship, and it really causes a a stagnancy to our life. It causes, it's like putting a, a beautiful plant in a really tight pot, and it just can't grow. So I want to encourage the reconciliation of conflict. That's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Reconcile, otherwise you give the devil a foothold into your life. You begin to move towards self-justification. You begin to get more solid in your position. And then reconciliation becomes even more difficult. So maturity comes through the reconciliation of conflict. And maturity also comes through the mutual pursuit of one another. That you are called to pursue one another intentional pursuit. Your oneness with your spouse will not come because you share a home and a checkbook and children. It won't come that way. It has to come through your pursuit. And what's interesting here, and ladies, I'll I'll throw this to you to think about. I always encourage men, you're the leaders, you lead in this, and I would still affirm that. But you will be surprised by the amount of feminine pursuit in this book. The woman speaks almost twice as much as the man. Now, that may not be a surprise to some of you, (laughs) but she pursues him with words of affirmation and love. She is moving towards him like he is moving towards her. It's actually a beautiful thing. In fact, the last verse of the whole book is the woman, and here's what she says. She says, come away, my beloved, And be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. It's an invitation, even towards the end of life, to come away with me and to enjoy me as I enjoy you. I mean, let's grow in our oneness. Even Even though we're getting older and our youth is fading fast, come away with me. It's a beautiful picture of the longing that should be present even at the end of our marriages. Not just when we're 22, but when we're 72. That same attraction. So for a church here, just how do I apply this to you? Well, a number of things. I think maturity in our marriages is a help for society. I would just remind you of that. Our society, probably one of the greatest revolutions, wasn't the French Revolution. It was probably the sexual revolution of the 60s. Uh, only because we, when we unhinged this powerful force of love and sexuality from this covenant with God, 
Um, we see the fruit of it now. Now, I'm not bemoaning society. I'm just saying that we see in the broken homes, we see in the, 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 just the, I don't know what the, I don't want to overwhelm you with percentages, but the percentages of children living in homes with one parent, and all the struggles that that attends, that our marriages, uh, marked by intimacy and joy and satisfaction and transparency and vocalizing and enjoyment of one another, that we can be a, a witness to the community. We can be people who adopt. We can be people who move towards those families who are struggling. That, that, those, that those who are young, we, we show them our marriages, that they see what the beauty of a Christ-centered marriage can be. And, and, and that's a draw and encouragement for them. And also, our marriages display the power of the gospel. Think about it now. When we speak about the power of the gospel, reconciling an absolutely holy God and, and, and sinful people, the power that 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 takes, we preach. But if they don't, if our children, if others don't see the reconciling power between husband and wife of the gospel, it's hard then to really say it can save a sinful man or woman with God if they don't see the reconciling power in our own marriages. So I would ask you to consider those things, that our marriages have a reflective power for the community and they display the power of the gospel. Now, again, I'm, I'm mindful that many of you have heard these words and I trust they've made sense and perhaps even stimulate your heart to greater thought about your own marriages. And you're probably thinking, well, that's not mine. And you flag in faith whether that will ever be yours. And you think, well, that's all well and good for you, but not for me. And again, when I, and we prayed diligently this morning, this is the nature of the brokenness of life. And we sang about it. We sang about we can come to Christ as broken people. And if you long for this, that's a good longing. Let's start there. It's the gift of God to even long for this. That's the beginning of worship, is to long for this, to appeal to God for this, to be more diligent before your heavenly father, not asking for your spouse to change, but you asking God to change you, that you could walk in a way that he calls us to walk, that you'd turn to a psalm of lament and you would appeal to God. Use the language of the disappointments of the saint in the psalms and appeal to God. How long, God, will you allow my marriage to be? to be unfulfilling. Just complain to God. That's what they're there for us. The psalmist in writing Psalms of Lament are are giving us language with which to complain to God without losing reverence for God and trust. And then turn to a psalm of trust. Help me, God. Let my feet be placed upon rock, not in the miry bog. And ask God for grace. and, and, And bring this between you and God. And the reason I say that is because this marriage is about us and God. See, when you look at this, and this is why the Song of Solomon is for the single, the divorced, the widow, the widower. It's for all of us. Why? Because this beautiful marriage that we see here, this love is founded upon a God who is love. He's the the divine lover of us. And that's why the the Song of Songs has been popular among every generation of Christian, particularly when they're in deep persecution. Do you realize this? That, that, that during the years of great persecution in, in Europe, this was one of the first books turned to. Why? You say it's this erotic book, it's all this erotic language of sexuality. But it speaks to the love that God has for his people. 
And particularly, Christ has for his church. He's the beloved, we're his love. I mean, in Ephesians 5, you see that. Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the, of the Lamb, we're the bride, the church. He loves us. So there is a, a little bit of allegory or typological view of this, where, where this is all rooted in the nature of God who is loving us unconditionally. And so when you're in persecution and you're suffering greatly, what do you need to know? He loves me. And he does. So it's for all of us. And we play a role in walking in that and enjoying that. So let's take a minute right now. We see this longing of love moving into a consummation of love and then maturing of love into full bloom. And this is what we have with each other now as spouses, but also what we'll have with God and the gospel. And the gospel makes all this legitimate. I, I can't, for those of you struggling right now, I, I can't. I ask you just to take these moments of silence and think about that, that scene of Christ bearing our sins, the sins, our sexual sins, our, our, our sexual hurts, and lift them up to him. You know, we are to care for each other. We are to admonish the idol, which I've tried to do today. Uh, we are to strengthen the weak, which I hope has happened. We are called to bind up the brokenhearted. And we're called to be patient with all. And so let's take these next few minutes and just ask God for grace. Maybe it's a time of convict conviction for you and confession of sin. Perhaps it's, a, perhaps it's a time of just asking for mercy. But let's take a few minutes now and then uh, an elder will close us in just a moment.